How many of you guys got to go to the uh, soccer game? Was it Wednesday? How many? Let's hear it. That was great. When's the next game? Home game. When's the next home game? Westmont, Wednesday. All right. Is it Wednesday? This coming Wednesday? All right. The girls this weekend, our volleyball team, will be in Whittier playing a tournament. And so if you're not burdened down with studies, or even if you are, and you can get some time off to go down and see them, I encourage you to do that. Next Tuesday, the girls will be here playing a home game. And so just encourage you maybe to go out and support that as well. I didn't get to make it to all the game Wednesday, the soccer game. My, my wife came over, and the boys came over to watch the team. Uh, one of the things that's kind of hard for me as my boys are getting older is that now I'm not the only hero that they have anymore. Um, Nate has found a lot of heroes on this campus in the form of the athletes, the baseball players and the soccer players and the basketball players. And uh, it's really kind of a little bit of a funny thing and a hard thing for me to start relinquishing that little sparkle in Nate's eye that I'm, you know, I'm, I can do in everything. And, of course, he knows that I can't do anything like those guys do on the soccer field or on a basketball court or on a baseball field. Nate came over this summer to be a part of the Masters College soccer uh, camp. And as a result of that, I think we have a soccer ball for every room of the house now, um, at least four or five soccer balls laying around the house. And it's really interesting. I think it's encouraging at the same time. If Nate's going to have heroes, I want to put a plug in for the guys because if in traveling with them that I've done and, and having the boys over here, one of the things that's really encouraging to me is that if my son's going to have heroes besides me, uh, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that as he grows older that those heroes are going to be people that have a relationship with Jesus Christ and exude that kind of passion and fervor. And it's really encouraging to see Nate make friends with some of our young men on this campus who have that kind of commitment. Uh, if he's going to be around people, I want him to be around our athletes because they're a good group of guys, and I really appreciate the influence they have on my son. And, is, and they do have an influence. In fact, the other night we sat down to, uh, with my wife, and Nate sat down to talk about his little, his little chore chart. And you, did you ever have one of those when you were growing up? I had one of those. Your mom makes out a little list of things that she wants you to do for the day. And at the, if you do all your list at the end of the week, she'll give you something for it, you know. Uh, back when you and I were growing up, it'd be maybe a sucker. Now it's a new Nintendo set, I think. It's kind of the, the stakes are higher. And as uh, Nate was sitting there with Kim talking about this little chore chart, she said, now, Nate, if you do all of this, you're going to get a surprise. And uh, Nate said, maybe, maybe stickers, Mom? And, you know, the little stickers he's, he, the kids really like to put on their things, everything. And uh, Kim says, yeah, maybe stickers, Nate. Stickers, Nate. And he says, well, maybe, maybe Chuck E. Cheese, Mom? And so he's kind of seeing how far he can go here. And she said, well, maybe Chuck E. Cheese, Nate. That, that's, my, that's a possibility if you do all your chores. And this shows you the influence of the athletes on, on Nate. He then looks at Kim, and he's, I think he's going to go for broke now. And he looks at her, and he says, what about going to Chicago and seeing the Bulls, Mom? <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Uh, five-year-old. Yeah, well, you do your chores, we're going to fly to Chicago, right? Why didn't we think of that? Yeah, two-for-one ticket. We can do it. We can do it. Open your Bible this morning as we uh, look at the distinctive of the Master's College called personal discipleship. And all I'd like you to do is turn in your text to a very familiar passage, one that uh, if you've ever heard any messages on discipleship or read any books on the subject, this is certainly going to be one of the passages the, the writer or communicator dealt with, and that is Luke chapter 14. And we'll begin in verses 25 through 30 and to the end of the chapter. 
as I read them, and if you'll follow along in whatever version of the Bible that you happen to have with you this morning. I'll read and you'll follow. I'm using an NIV, and so whichever version you're using, try to stay up with me here. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. Verse 30, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Christ says, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34, so salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pause and pray for just a moment. Father, it is our desire in the next few minutes that we have here in chapel to, again, to turn our hearts and minds towards you. Uh, This morning we are looking together at a subject that is very much at the core of who we are at the Master's College. It is our desire as an administrative team to bring people on board that are committed to seeing Christ transform people's lives because of the one-on-one involvement that they have in the students' lives and, and in each other's lives as staff and faculty. And Lord, what a joy it is to be a part of an institution where we are surrounded with people who are committed to that and surrounded by students who desire that and who are part of that process as well. And Lord, in the next few minutes, I just pray that we would uh, possibly learn more about what it means to be involved in a meaningful spiritual relationship Lord, challenge us with your word, challenge us through the the voice of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A uh, little boy was accustomed to going to school every, every week and just about every day carrying some sort of note from mommy. Uh, it seemed that this little boy in his, little el- in his elementary school had a lot of trouble meeting the expectations that the teacher in the school placed upon him. And it would seem like to the teacher anyway that every day he would be carrying with him, bringing with him some sort of excuse note. Uh, If it was a plan for the class to go on some sort of field trip or excursion, the little boy would bring an excuse note from mommy that says, please let little Johnny out uh, out of the responsibility to go on the field trip today. If the class was going to be running the 600 yard dash, which they do in elementary school for the president's fitness program, then little Johnny would bring a little note from mommy again saying, please let him out of uh, having to run the 600-yard dash. And when it was time for him to be involved in physical education class, he would bring a note for that. It seemed like to the teacher that this little boy knew nothing other than what it means to be excused out of things. And one day she gave the the students an assignment, and she told them, what I would like you to do tomorrow is I would like for you to bring your birth certificates. And uh, we're going to talk about... uh, the things that are found on a birth certificate, sort of kind of a show-and-tell thing in class. 
and you've been a part of that, I've been a part of that, and so the teacher did that, thought it would be sort of a creative thing to do. And so all the students in the class brought their birth certificates except little Johnny again. He had forgotten his. And when the teacher started asking them to get their birth certificates out and set them on the table, little Johnny makes himself his way up out of his seat, walks up to the, to the front of the class to talk to the teacher and, and grabs her and she leans over and, and little Johnny whispers in her ear, and these, this is a quote from the teacher, I'm sorry, teacher, but I've lost my excuse for being born. Now, in a way, that's a, that's a little funny and a little comical. You think, well, the kid is so confused that he even thinks in the, a birth certificate's an excuse. But I think in the words of that little child, there is some sense a reflection of the world that you and I live in. I think that we are surrounded by a people and by a culture that has lost its excuse for being born. In other words, we are living among a group of people that do not understand the purpose and meaning in life. And aimlessness and meaninglessness and purposelessness is so much a part of what we see around us in the world without Jesus Christ. In fact, it's pervasive. In, it's seen in literature. And, and I, in the study for this message, I came across a play by a man named John Osborne, and the title of the pray, play is Look Back in Anger. And in that, he has a, a hero that is called Jimmy, and, and Jimmy is the person that is kind of the deliverer of the society, and, and he turns on society and sort of rebukes it at one point. And these are the words that John Osborne gives to Jimmy. Jimmy says, there are no more brave and big causes left anymore. And I think that that is sort of the sentiment of the hour is that there really is, seems to be a loss of ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning in life. And there seems to be a scurrying about in a, in a kind of a panic fashion, trying to come up with some sort of, of sense and meaning of why we're here. It's also, I think, this issue of a lack of meaning in life is what fills our psychotherapist's office with appointments. Uh, another book that I came across by Carl, and if you're in behavioral studies, I'm sorry for mispronouncing his last name. I always get this mixed up, whether it's Jung, Young, or Jung, or whatever it is. But in one of his books, The Practice of Psychotherapy, he says this, and I quote, One-third of all the cases that come to me are not suffering from any type of clinically definable neurosis, but simply from the aimlessness and meaninglessness of life. In fact, he goes on to say in this same section in the book that I would not object to saying that purposelessness is the neurosis of our day. And whether or not you agree totally with Carl Jung or not, I think you would have to agree with his words here, and that is that we are surrounded by people who are confused about what is meaning. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be using our lives to do? Another thing that I think reveals this, this aimlessness is in the movies that are coming out right now. Uh, there seems to be a real fad, a real trend in Hollywood by the writers and the producers and the directors to put before you and I... Uh, Movies that really are, I would say, have as their theme the escape from meaninglessness. And there's a whole bunch of those movies that have come out. Uh, movies such as this summer the, called The Doctor and Regarding Henry. And I even think the movie that mommy, probably a lot of you saw that, that received so many awards, and that is uh, Dances with Wolves and one of Costner's other films, uh, The Field of Dreams. I think all of these movies at the very foundation of what they're trying to tell you and me is that there is meaning in life, but the meaning isn't what we thought it was. It's somewhere else. And as you sit down and really look at what those films are saying, what the people are doing, uh, that's exactly what is happening. What is happening is that there are people in the film that have thought they found meaning in something, and they have pursued it all their lives. They've given themselves to it fully and only to come up empty. Well, not to be frustrated, 
Hollywood is not saying, well, there is no meaning, but rather there is meaning somewhere else. And so they direct us in another, in another pursuit. And so I think it's found in movies as well. I also think it's, it's something that is seen in the political movements of our era. In 1914, when Lenin went to Russia, he had an estimated 40,000 followers. Within recent months prior to all the upheaval that has been taking place across our globe, at least one-third of the world's population stood under the communist uh, sickle and hammer. In fact, three-fifths of the world's land surface was under communist reign and rule. And you've got to ask yourself, what is it about communism that drew followers? And I think, and I would suggest that among other things, one of the things that made communism successful is that it gave people something to live for and something to die for. It gave them a sense of meaning and purpose. It gave them a sense of direction. It gave them a sense of order, of trying to kind of make everything kind of fit in so that we know why we're here and where we're going and where we've come from. And so it's seen all around us. And one of the, and I put down here, one of the cruel, cruelties, I think, thank you. We're going to have a pizza delivered, but we can only get water, okay. <laughs> one, of the, one of the cruelties of life is this is that in the search for meaning, there is, I think, in a temporal sense, a, a degree of improvement that is realized. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, in some of the films that I just mentioned, for instance, I mean, in The Doctor and regarding Henry, what starts out as a man who is, who is pursuing crass materialism and success and wealth and cars and fame and power ends up as being a person who is a sensitive, caring a connected individual with his family and his children and his friends. Well, you would have to agree with me, I believe, that, that there is some sense, in some sense, an improvement there. And all of us would say that. We would all describe that as an improvement. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, there is certainly something that is superior to being connected with people than being a crass materialist. But yet at the same time, even though there is, a, I think, in a temporal sense, an improvement, there is still no ultimate answer there. We feel like we found it, and for a, for a little brief, brief period of time, we feel like we've come up with the answer, but upon further reflection and upon further effort, the longer we pursue meaning in these things, we find that this is empty too. This is not what I thought it was. It lasted for a little while, and maybe it's even a little better, but it's not really giving me what I thought it would give me. And that's not a new problem. When you look back, and I don't want you to turn there, but when you look back in a passage like Ecclesiastes, I mean, one of the thing that's, things that Solomon tells us in the very beginning of the book is that he tried the very same thing that is coming out of, in these movies. And that is he thought meaning was in, was in pleasure, and he thought meaning was in wisdom, he thought meaning was in wealth, he thought meaning was in all kinds of hard, diligent toil and labor. And the bottom line, he tells us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, is that that was meaningless as well. But I think all of us would agree that wisdom is superior than foolishness. Wealth is certainly superior than poverty. Being a hard worker is certainly superior than being slothful. So there is, there is a cruelty there in that while things improve in the ultimate sense of the word, in the ultimate sense of life and eternity, there is still emptiness. You understand what I'm saying? And that's one of the, I think, the cruelties of our world is that there is, a, there is this false hope that seems to come, come around time and time and time again. In your passage that you're looking at in Luke chapter 14, I think it is that very principle that possibly that Jesus Christ is responding to in verse 25 when he turns around and he looks at the large crowds. What he is addressing is a group of people that have been drawn to him because of all of the, the marvelous things that he has done. 
I mean, there's been the healing of the, the woman that was on the Sabbath, the crippled lady. There was the miracles. There were the feeding of the multitudes. And all of these things drew a crowd to Jesus Christ. And turning around, looking at the crowd, I believe that possibly what was in the mind of our Savior at this point is a, a thought of alarm. Now, wait a second. All of these people who are following me, do they really, truly understand what it means to be in relationship with me? To know me as their Savior and Lord? To know what it means to be someone committed to me as God? Is that why they're after me? Is that why I'm drawing these large crowds? Or is there another reason possibly? Possibly they don't really understand what it means to be a follower of me. In other words, I think that he is possibly addressing the same problem that has been a part of man's thinking for ever since there has been a person upon the globe, and that is that we have a tendency to all the time be going around looking for false answers to the question of what is the meaning of life. And the false answers, and I don't want you to get this, because this is important for you to understand what we're all about here at the college, sometimes the false answer to meaning looks very spiritual. I mean, I don't think there would be too many people, if you, were not, if you and I were spectators of that movement at that time, when this crowd was following Jesus Christ and he turned around, on the surface, I think most of us would have to describe that situation as pretty good. I mean, look at that. There is, a, there is the Savior, and there is this incredible crowd, excited, following him, wanting to learn from him, listening to him. And I think that on the surface, we would say that these people are really people that are honoring the Lord and, and are following him and are in awareness of what it means to be one of his children and one of his disciples. And a lot of times, the false pursuit of meaning looks that way. It doesn't have to look like money. It doesn't have to look like cars. It doesn't have to look like wealth, and it doesn't have to look like fame. It doesn't have to look like looks and appearance and popularity. Sometimes it looks like something spiritual. And it was these spiritual people, sort of like what we are, the large crowd following after the Lord. It was this spiritual people that Christ turns around and addresses and says, now wait a second, I think it's very important at this point that we really understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that possibly the reason he wanted that to take place at this time is because he wanted to be very sure that they weren't just kind of finding in Christ or in spiritual or ministry activity another empty answer to the fulfillment of their life and to the, the agony of their heart and the emptiness of their soul. And so that's what our Lord does. He turns around to that crowd and he says, let me explain to you what it really means to be a disciple. And in doing that, he lays out for us four things. This is what I want you to see. First of all, look at verse 26. And let me read it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father and his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The first point that I put down here, what I think that Christ is addressing is this. A true disciple must be a person that is willing and is actively involved in surrendering all earthly allegiances. Do you understand that? I think that's what this verse is telling us. That if you are genuinely a disciple of Jesus Christ, what you are pursuing is a surrendering of all of the other allegiances you have except to the person of Jesus Christ. And the allegiances that he describes to, to us here are some of the most important ones in the world, our family and even ourselves. And I think that Christ purposely takes those things which are very dear to us and uses those as sort of an illustration of whether or not, and kind of uses them to kind of draw out the hearts of the followers there, of whether or not they're genuinely, truly interested in following Jesus Christ as the only allegiance of their heart and soul. Um, 
in line with that, to kind of give us an idea of how hard it is these words must have been to, to these people and how hard these words should be to us, I think as we look back in the passage beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, and following through all of the Scripture and even through human history, there's, I would say that the greatest fear that man faces, that you and I face in our fallenness, in our, in our uh, imperfection, even though we're saved, is the fear of rejection. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, the very first emotional energy that Adam felt was that fear and the fear that he would not measure up. And the fear of rejection is intense. I mean, if there's one thing that you and I don't want to experience, it is to experience exposure and once exposed to experience rejection. Isn't that right? And I think that is something that drives so much of what we are and so much of what we do. And there's a lot of things that you can reject about me. I mean, you can reject something that is kind of, kind of, kind of extracurricular to who I am. I mean, you can reject my glasses and say, Dave, I don't think I like those glasses. You can reject my shoes and you can reject my tie. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could reject and it really doesn't have that great of impact on me. But if you really want to solicit from me anger and hatred and wrath, reject that thing, whatever it is that I have built my life on. That thing that I have put aside and, and said, that is what life is all about. That is what defines my meaning and my purpose. You understand what I'm saying? And that could be anything. Maybe that is my glasses. Maybe it is my looks. And you say, well, Dave, I had a body like you. I certainly would think of something else. And you say, well, you know, what, what is that thing? Well, it virtually could be anything. But whatever it is that you are building your life upon and whatever it is besides Jesus Christ that you're trying to suck meaning out of, if we touch that about you, if you sit in my office or if I sit somewhere out in the oaks and you touch that in my life or I touch that in your life, one thing that we're sure to, to get is anger and hostility and hatred. I mean, that's one of the toughest things about witnessing, isn't it? Because one of the first things that you try to do in witnessing is to try to get people to understand their need of the Savior. And in doing that, you try to talk about their own life and, and the mess of their life and the need and their sin and, uh, and how that life isn't really working the way they hoped it would and how that they're not, they're not experiencing joy and happiness and, and fulfillment as God designed them to experience it. And you try to deal with that and you point that out like I have tried to point that out in my dad and say, Dad, who is not a believer, and say, Dad, you know, this is not what life is all about. And I can talk to my dad again about all kinds of things, but when I talk about the one thing that's important to him, which is his business... And I say, Dad, you know, you've given yourself for 35, 40 years to build this business. And, you know, that's, that's, that's all going to rot. I mean, I'm not going to take the business over. Your other two sons aren't going to take the business over. I mean, it's just going to come to a crashing halt. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, that'll get my dad's attention. I mean, my dad, is, it's, like, it's just like, ah, you know, don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to you. I mean, because my dad has built his entire existence upon this is what life is means and this is what life is about and so when I when when Christ talks about allegiance to earthly things I don't think it's just anything that he's talking about I think he purposely picks out things that you and I would possibly be likely to build meaning on and purpose on and what Christ is wanting us to catch and wanting us to understand is wait a second if you're truly a disciple if you're really someone who understands what it means to be a follower of me then you're a person who understands that Meaning doesn't come from anything outside of me. And one of the ways for us to see that in you is to touch whatever it is that that is functioning for you, that functions that way for you in your life. And I think that was, the, that was what Christ meant by his words in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, and again, don't turn there, but in verses 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me 
if you belong to the world, note those terms. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. In other words, Christ says, well, wait a second. You're not going to have any hatred and wrath coming to you from the world if it feels like you belong to it and it owns you. And what he's talking about there is I think that you and the world sort of reflect each other's commitment to what life is all about and its meaning and purpose. And as long as you're comfortable with that, and as long as you leave the world comfortable with their understanding of what meaning is, you're okay. But as soon as you touch that and say meaning is in something, as in a person called Jesus Christ, the world will hate you because it will start recognizing you as someone that is not one of them. You understand that? I think that was what Christ was talking about here. First of all, a true disciple is someone who understands that you must surrender all earthly allegiances. Um, in parenting, there's a lot of tough things about parenting. And, in, and I didn't really have parents who modeled good parenting before me. And so I'm, I'm failing all the time. I'm making messes all the time. Well, one of the things that really was a hard thing for me was trying to deal with Nate and his security blanket. He was kind of like, is it Lionel in, in, in Peanuts that has a little blanket that he carries around? Well, that was, that was Nate. And I never had anything like that. And, and I didn't know what to do about that. And we did all kinds of creative things to get Nate separated from his blanket. I mean, the guy, it's, and if you've ever been around a child who's had this type of thing in their life, you know that the blanket starts smelling. And I mean, it really it stinks. It looks dirty. It's embarrassing. It, it kind of, I mean, he carries it everywhere. You go into a restaurant, he's got this old stinky blanket that he's been sucking on. He's got all this... You know, all this saliva, you know, it's just, it's just a terrible thing. And we tried to come up with all kinds of things. We tried to convince him that we, you know, we should give it to, to Goodwill and to help the, the, the kids in Bangladesh. And, and uh, you know, we tried to convince him that when we, when a friend of ours had a baby, that we would now give this baby the blanket because this baby didn't have a blanket and Nate didn't buy that one either. And so one of the things that we finally did is we took Nate on a trip to West Virginia to see my parents. And part of the strategy behind this entire plane trip was to separate Nate from his blanket. I mean, we're, we're willing to go to any lengths at this point because we'd like to eat in a restaurant without the odor, accompanying odor, you know. <laughs> and so we get to West Virginia and we purposefully make the departure very hurried and kind of confusing. So that, so that we're all kind of, you know, kind of going around, running around, getting our things and kind of hoping that Nate would be sort of disheveled. And all the time my mom has got his blanket folded and put into a dresser out of sight. And we think, well, this is going to work. We're going to get this thing away from him. You know, we're going to, we're going to trick him. And, and so we got on the plane. Nate all of a sudden realizes, I have not got my blanket. And we, what we thought was just a wonderful idea for the next six hours was utter hell. I mean, on this plane, <laughs> it was misery. Because I don't know if you've ever been with a crying child on a plane, on a packed plane. But if there's one thing that I think definitely deserves pur purgatory, it is that. I mean, and that was our child, and it's so embarrassing and so irritating. And Nate, for six hours, I want my blanket! And, and of course, the stewardess are so kind. They're bringing him everything, you know. They're bringing him pillows. They're bringing him other blankets. They're bringing him crayons. She even asked me if, if we wanted to give him a bourbon, you know. Get him to sleep. Do anything. <laughs> you know, we're desperate. And the reason that we're so desperate is because that, that was Nate's, exactly as it says, that was his security. And boy, I mean, when Nate went to sleep, when he walked around, when he went to meet new friends, that gave him something that was secure and familiar and kind of gave him a little bit, bit of, boy, this is, this, is, this is good. You know, I can, I can stand anything if I just have this. You take that away, though, and you've got problems. And that's exactly what I think that Christ is trying to say is, look, if you're truly a disciple of mine, you can't build your life on anything. 
or anybody other than your allegiance to me and your relationship with me. That's number one. That's the first qualification. Number two, look at verse 27 in, in Luke chapter 14. The second thing that Christ does in his description of what it means to be a disciple in verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And there's a lot of, a lot of interpretations of what it means to carry the cross. And, and I think that, that certainly one of the things I think we can all agree on that is a part of this passage and part of this verse is that a disciple must be focused on the ultimate, his ultimate objective, which is heaven and fellowship with Christ, rather than on the comfort and convenience of life now. Right? And I think that's what Christ is trying to address as far as the second qualification of being one of his disciples. Is that you can't be a disciple if you have lost your focus and that focus being ultimately heaven. And that your entire life and all of your energy is spent trying to make life good here. But rather, one of the marks of someone who is genuinely one of Christ's disciples is a person who is drawn, who is motivated, who is energized by the hope and the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven. Now, I mean, ask yourself that question. Can you think, when was the last time that you could, you could really think that you were motivated to do anything or to be anything or to act or to react simply because of the awareness that you're going to heaven and spending eternity in fellowship with Jesus Christ? I mean, that's one of the things that Christ is talking about, is that heaven is, is a key in our lives. That is the key focus. That is the ultimate objective. That is what it's all about, is being in fellowship with him. Not making life better here. Not making, seeing this as the ultimate end of what our pursuits are all about. But rather being focused and having our desires focused on being with Jesus and being in eternity with him. That's one of the earmarks. That's one of the characteristics of one of Christ's disciples. And Paul talks about that all the time in all kinds of sort, different passages in the New Testament. One, two of those passages is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in that passage, in verse 4, he talks about the troubles of life, the sufferings of life, the distress of life, the hardships of life, the great pressures of life. Even to the point in verse 8, he says, that I even despaired of life itself. But what, what kept him going? What kept him doing what he was doing? What kept him trusting God? What kept him in a life of obedience and submission? Well, he tells us in that same passage. And that was that my hope is focused upon the deliverance that will come from God. And I think as you read through that, that chapter, what you will find in Paul is he's not talking about be, being delivered now. He's talking about being delivered in, through resurrection. He's talking about being delivered through transformation into the presence of Jesus Christ. But that's what drives me, is wanting to be with our Lord and wanting to spend time with him and to fellowship with him and to sup with him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Another passage where he brings out the same thing is in Romans chapter 8, and I won't read the verses just because of time, but Paul says the exact same thing. In the, in the first verse, he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he goes on and talks about all the groaning and the, the struggles of life now, but he said, but that's, but that's dwarfs in light of the fellowship and the joy and the, the cherished presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven. And so the second characteristic, I think, of the disciple is the fact that we, are, we have a new focus, and our focus is heaven. Our focus isn't here. It's interesting. I went through the, um, religious, the religion periodical guide in our library uh, just, to, just to see how many articles have been written on the subject of heaven in recent years. Now, that is really, is really instructive because in the last 10 years, there has been an average of only one article per year on the subject of heaven. 
In fact, one, one editor, Philip Yancey, writing in Christianity Today, says that he believes that it, there are at least three reasons why heaven no longer is found to be a subject in preaching or in the books or in, in, in articles. He said because one of those reasons is the affluence that we are now experiencing. Two is what he calls creeping paganism into our, into our lifestyles and our worldview. And three, because our biblical images of what heaven really is have changed. And he goes on to say, listen to this. I thought this was interesting. Christian communicators have a clear responsibility to project a new understanding of heaven into the modern consciousness. If we fail, we forfeit one of faith's greatest features. To people who are trapped in pain, in economic chaos, in hatred and fear, heaven offers wholeness and peace. But then he asked the question, and he says, and I haven't, he said, I can't solve the problem in this one editorial. He said, but why is it evangelicals are not preaching and teaching and writing on heaven? And with 5,000 religious periodicals out there, printing hundreds of thousands of articles a, week, a month and a year, why are there only 10 articles for the last 10 years on the subject of heaven? I think that's instructive. I think it shows a decline in our focus. It shows a shift in our focus. We are so comfortable with now. We are so focused on the now and making life good now and, and having God bless us now that it is kind of, kind of toned down and taken the edge off of our desire to be with our Lord. But our Lord is saying, but that's one of the keys, that's one of the earmarks, that's one of the characteristics of being my disciple. That's one of the reasons also, and you're going to hear it in chapel, one of the reasons that in an upcoming chapel series, we've asked John to speak on the subject of heaven, and he'll be doing that uh, very soon. He's going to be doing a four-part series in chapel. Because I think we believe, and I hope that you believe, that one of the things that should characterize us is that our desire and our passion to be with our Lord in heaven. Thirdly, look at verses 28 through 32. The third characteristic of a disciple. Number one, he has what? A new desire. And that desire is an allegiance to Christ rather than on earthly things. Number two, he has a new focus. And the focus is on, on now, it is on heaven. Number three, he has a new peace. And what Christ does in this passage, and, and this has been a difficult passage for me to understand as I've read it through the years and read the different commentaries and the different articles on this passage to try to figure out what it is our Lord is trying to say in this passage. And I want to just quickly give you what I think is the, the, at least at this point, the interpretation that I think is correct, although I might change next week, but this is one I feel comfortable with this morning. Listen to this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. Verse 31, suppose a king is about to go against war against another king and doesn't sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming. Now, this is what I think this passage is about. I believe that the builder and the king in this passage is not the disciple. I think that there's a good, good reason to think that the builder and the king in this passage is Jesus Christ. And if that is true, then the interpretation of the passage would go this way. That our Lord knows that by giving you and I the task and the opportunity to be in fellow workers with him and building his kingdom, that he is, that he is obviously opening up himself to the possibility of failure. I mean, he's, if you and I are involved in it, we're fallen. Failure and frustration and the, the lack of completion of the task is certainly a possibility. But in order for us to be encouraged by the fact that we are players in the building of the kingdom and we are, we are members who have a significant role to play, this is what I think our Lord is saying in this passage, is that I know as the builder that if the building doesn't get completed, I am the one it is my glory, it is my Father who stands to be ridiculed. I am the king, and I know that if my kingdom and if my battle against, against evil and against Satan isn't 
one, I am the one who stands to face catastrophe. Because it is Christ's mission from his Father to do two things. One, to bring his Father glory, and two, to do that by what? Expanding his kingdom. And if neither one of those things occurs, then who stands to lose the most? What's well, not us, it's Jesus Christ. And I think what, our, what the Lord is saying here is that, wait a second, I'm the builder, and yet I have sat down and I have figured out what it's going to take to complete this project. I am the king, and yet I have sat down and I have figured out what it's going to take to win this battle. And the peace that I think that he is trying to instill into the disciples at this point is this. There is peace from the fact that we know that Jesus Christ is the one who's in control. Christ is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is sovereign. It is not us. It is not upon our shoulders that God's kingdom is ultimately going to rest. Certainly, in some mysterious way, we have some contribution to make to that. In some mysterious way, there is some way that God will either fail or succeed in that effort according to what we do. But ultimately, in the, in the final outcome, Jesus Christ is the only one who is in control. And I think to the disciples that would be a word of comfort and peace, knowing that this project that God has asked them to join in on and to be a part of is not something that ultimately depends upon them, that our Lord is in control. And then the last thing. Look at verses 34 and verse 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure power, pile, it is thrown out. As you know, having studied some of biblical history, salt in ancient days, as even in our days, was not found in its pure form. In the area where Christ was addressing these disciples, these followers, salt was generally gathered at the Dead Sea, and it was found around the shores in kind of a white kind of a white substance. And what the farmer would do is go to the Dead Sea and he'd kind of gather that up. And what he would gather up in this white substance was not only salt, but impurities. And what he would use the salt, the farmer would use the salt to do, is that he would use it for fertilizer, he would use it as a preservative, and he would use it as a spice to give taste to things. And salt was good. It was designed for that. It was something that, that would work for those purposes. It had a creative purpose by God to do those things. And I think the analogy that Christ is saying is discipleship is good. It has a creative purpose. It will do the thing that God designed it to do, it, it intends it to do. However, if you and I back away from that commitment to discipleship, if you and I fail to, to progress in that commitment, if we fail to be a part of being involved in each other's lives and, and having meaningful spiritual relationships with one another, then what does that say about us? Well, you and I, as the salt, fail to now fulfill our creative purpose because our creative purpose is to be a part of God's program. And when we're not involved in each other's lives, when we're not stimulating each other on in godliness and in, and, and in righteousness and in holiness, then we have failed our very creative purpose. What is at the core of who we are and what God intends us to be? And when that happens, what is the conclusion? It's worthless. And the same thing happened to the salt. Generally, what would happen, the farmer would pile the salt up in some huge heap behind the house. And what would happen very often is the rains would come down and they would kind of wash away the salt. And all that would be left is just the, the impurities. The white, it still looks the same. It's still the white powder. But the salt itself, that which was really the good thing, the thing that, would, that made an, a difference, is gone. And the passage, and what would happen in other passages in the scripture we would read and in, in an extra biblical literature, the only thing you can do with that, once it's lost its intended purpose, is to throw it under the street and just let people trot upon it. And I think that the last point that Christ is making to us is is this, and that is that in the ultimate sense, the only thing that's going to define for you and give to you meaning and purpose, and the only thing that's going to address in, address in your life a sense of aimlessness is a commitment 
to discipleship. A commitment to be involved in people's lives and be a part of the program of God in building his kingdom. And the, and the implications of these words are quite serious. And if you fail to do that, then you're surrendering the very creative purpose that God gave you. You're surrendering the thing that's at the very core of who you are. It's a serious implication. So why are we committed to discipleship at the Master's College as a distinctive? Well, quite clearly, because we believe it is, it is God's program to build his church. It is God's program to usher his kingdom into heaven. And young men and young ladies, I hope that, that you understand that, that you don't have to wait till you graduate from college. You don't have to wait till you graduate from seminary. You don't have to wait till you graduate uh, from anything to start being involved in each other's lives. And because I've, I've been too windy up here, I have two testimonies that we're going to hear later. Because I, I wanted you to hear that we have students that are contributing to other students right now. And you can be a part of that. You can be pursuing right now and wherever you are in your spiritual journey in meaningful spiritual relationships with those around you. If you're a freshman, if you're a sophomore, if you're a junior or a senior, that is what God has called you to do. Don't wait. You say, well, Dave, how can I do that? I, what I would do is say, first thing you can do is let me direct you to your faculty and to your staff and to our dorm staff and ask them, how can I be involved in someone's life? How can I be someone who contributes to the spiritual progress of another individual? I hope you're here for that purpose, because that's why we're here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings us an understanding of what it is you've called us to be and to do. Lord, help us to be faithful to that calling. Lord, help us to, even in light of hardship and in, in the light of, of disappointment and failure, to not give up and to not persevere and to, and to not remain faithful and, and trusting in you. Lord, being involved in another person's life in a, in a meaningful way is a, is a difficult thing. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for people to be involved in our lives, and it's a hard thing for us to be involved in their lives. But as we've read in this passage, it is the very thing that gives us an understanding of what life's all about. Lord, I pray that there will be young men and young ladies in this room that today will search out a faculty member or a staff member and ask them how they can be a part of this, this wonderful program. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you very much.